Now is not the time to be eating subpar quality meat. I'm sorry, somebody has to say it. Your local grocery store is not getting it done. Sorry, if you run a butcher shop in a grocery store, I apologize. But you know, it's the truth. There is so many outlets out there that you can buy meat from online, but why go any further than unitedharvest.com? Find the highest quality meats purchased from ranchers, straight from ranchers, no middlemen. This company has their own butcher shop. They have their own butcher. They can promise the highest quality meats available. Go to unitedharvest.com, type in the promo code FRIENDS15 for 15% off your first order. This is the show with Cannon Brown. The focus on all of this is to have fun, to gain some education, to gain some life experience, and not make winning the absolute finite thing. That last few minutes might have been a little confusing. You'd like to know who I was talking to, wouldn't you? Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. If you're a reoccurring listener, thank you so much for sticking around, okay? I feel like I'm in a commercial right now saying, hey, thanks so much for being a longtime customer because I have not been the best podcast host um, in releasing episodes weekly or even uh, monthly this past month. Um, I would fill this introduction with excuses if I was a lesser man, but I will not. And I will just say... um, I apologize. I'll be better. And I know I've said that before, but I actually have like a backstock of interviews now. So we're going to be going for a while. Um, And then uh, check out the Keeper Pen as well. Check out Legendary Mindset and check out Cattle Pros. We will be releasing more episodes coming up on a frequent basis. Okay. No more excuses. As my ag teacher in high school said, excuses are like armpits. Everyone has them, and they all stink. I think that's I think that's the quote, Um, a long long time quote right there. That's that's just some words to live by. So hey, welcome back to the show with Cannon Brown. I've got a great guest uh, today, Mr. Tor Sorensen. If if you guys don't know who Tor is, um, it, it would be okay. And I, I mean no disrespect by that, but Tor is a quiet guy. He, he's not um, boastful about his accolades. He's not out there on the front lines on social media or anything like that. Tor uh, is literally the man behind the curtain uh, for uh, the state of Arizona um, jackpot series. We have a jackpot series called SELA, Southern Arizona International Livestock Association, and he has been the executive director for around 30 years now. Um, he's seen major changes. He's seen major growth, especially in the last 10 to 5 years. Everyone knows that this industry has changed. Um, it's good to get a perspective from somebody that's running an organization that is dependent on the youth of this organization and uh, to figure out what his perspective on these changes are. So we, we go kind of in-depth to that. But also, Tor is a very accomplished livestock judge. Uh, he's, he's judged Louisville for, I think he said, 15 years he's judged at Louisville. Um, and I didn't even know that. I've known this man for a long time, being as though I was uh, I judged in the uh, jackpot series, so I knew who he was. 
no idea that he uh, was judging at Louisville so frequently. So um, pretty high honors there. And he also raises llamas. So we, we got a big diversity here um, with Mr. Tor Sorensen. So obviously I talk too much. Um, again, we will be on a more regular basis with the podcast. Um, and yeah, I'm going to be more, uh, I'm going to be better on social media. That's not the first time I've said that, huh? Um, but really, like, I, I really do need to make it a point cause I'm just, I'm, I'm letting you guys down. Okay. I'm letting you guys down. I need to pick it up. I apologize. That's enough of me talking. Let's do it. Mr. Tor Sorensen. You're safer here than any place else. Now just lock yourself in and keep quiet. Beautiful. Now, how is it, um, I mean, how is it running a junior organization across a couple state lines? Um, other than the fact of having to be back there for each of the shows, it's not bad. Um, you know, so whether I drive or fly, um, it really doesn't have a whole lot of effect whether I'm in Arizona or here. So, okay. All right. Well, um, I guess we should introduce you to the people that are probably probably listening uh tor Sorensen, <laughs> mr tor Sorensen. um i've known tor for a while now it's been a long time uh but it wasn't until yesterday that i got to know a heck of a lot more than i thought i knew about you when we did a little overview for this episode um so tor uh is the executive director of sela uh, which is the Southern Arizona International Livestock Association. Uh, it's the premier jackpot series in Arizona, if I do say so myself. The Southwest. The Southwest. Um, so, Tor, hey, welcome on. Good to be here. Now, um, Tor has uh, a little bit of a unique aspect on run- running a junior organization because you've been doing it for basically your entire adult life. Uh, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Right out of college, you started working for yep. sailor even before, uh, uh, you graduated, you were working for sailor and, and then once you graduated, you kind of took over the helm. I did. Um, I really don't know how to do any other job. <laughs> so, or I've never had the experience of doing anything else. So, but I, I mean, um, the, it, was it your dream job? I mean, did you go into it thinking uh, this is what I'm going to do forever? Uh, no, no, I certainly did not. Um, I was like a lot of college graduates, wasn't sure what exactly, um, what path I was headed on. And, uh, this kind of fell in my lap and, 30 years later, here I am. So, um, having shown livestock all my life, um, it seemed like a fairly natural fit. But um, if you had asked me when I was a freshman in college, was this what I thought I wanted to do? I wouldn't have had any idea. So, yeah. Yeah, because, um, I mean, you, you told me that it wasn't until about your junior year of high school that you kind of got really involved in showing. Um, I mean, that's when you got 
cheap in high school. That's when you kind of started raising a little bit. Is that correct? Right. Yep. Um, I, my 4-H career started as a nine-year-old kid. Um, my cousin and I had the opportunity to show a couple of Holstein heifers that belonged to her dad's dairy. And um, from there, it uh, turned into a rabbit project that went on and well and through high school. But uh, when I was in school, because we lived in town, um, typical suburban kid, I did not have really any access to anything until I went to school and the high school had a land lab and I was able to um, have some sort of a large stock and I knew that uh, the pig thing was not for me and probably the calf thing was not either. So at that time, um, there really wasn't any meat goat project. So sheep seemed the logical avenue and... Uh, the first lamb that I had, I swore I never wanted to have another one, and so the next year I had three. <laughs> That's usually how went, it goes. Went, went downhill from there. <laughs> what um what high school did you go to? Alafria, out in Oh, Avondale. really? Yep. Oh gosh, that's a um. What what kind of land lab did they have uh, at Alafria? Uh, there was maybe 10 acres worth of land lab per se, and probably eight of that was in a cornfield. Um, there was, you know, roughly two acres that uh, they had a kind of a shed row sort of a thing and, um, you know, pens on each side and mm. kids could keep calves, sheep and pigs there. Um, it was not very fancy. <laughs> but uh, served the purpose. It definitely served a purpose. I mean, it helped you out. I mean, you probably, I don't know if you would have gotten the animals if you wouldn't have had it being a suburban uh, kid, right? Well, probably not. No. Yeah. Whenever I think of uh, Agrafria, I, um, I always think of the old Marty Robbins song, big iron. Are you required to learn that song from being from that town? No. Oh gosh. That's just a shame. <laughs> <laughs> just a little uh just a little side note for you um there you go. i just i love that song i feel like everybody should know it so huh. it's fine um no i think that's great that they had a land lab for you you can keep some sheep um ended up getting a couple more the next year what what made you go um to the university of arizona um uh basically because it was more of an agriculture-related school than ASU or NAU would have been. Um, and it was also a way to kind of get out on my own. You know, if I went to ASU, that was going to be still fairly close to home. So I, uh, I knew that agriculture was a, uh, you know, an avenue that I wanted to pursue, so it seemed the logical choice. And you uh, studied animal science, correct? Were Were there any other uh, particular subjects that you were into besides animal science? I mean, it, did you did you have any other classes besides agriculture classes you were in, interested in? Um, not particularly, and I'm not 
embarrassed to say, but, uh, you know, the required classes that you had to take, you know, chemistry, et cetera. And my first computer class, basic introduction to uh, computers, I was happy to get a D and pass <laughs> and be done. I, yes. I kind of like I told you yesterday, I feel like I was born 100 years too late a lot of times. And um, some of the modern technology just was not for me. And the first time I actually went to the computer lab and sat down at the computer, I sat there probably for five minutes and figured out, I couldn't figure out how to turn the thing on and I got up and left. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's pretty funny. It had to be kind of wild watching that transition, though. I mean, you were in school for basically the transition of everything's kind of being written down in books to, hey, here's some large computers. Let's transfer all this stuff onto here. Right, right. That you had know, to be just wild as... to watch. Well, I would say so. You know, the, the people that actually had laptops or anything at that point in time was – non-existent uh, you know yeah. i mean so um there were no cell phones you know <laughs> it's just it was back in the wild days uh yeah the wild west basically gosh dang <laughs> tucson and in, in the 1980s that's basically the wild west if i ever uh, pictured one uh, yep yep now you graduated in 88 uh um, yes i basically extended a semester so that I could finish out my senior year judging collegiately. Um, so I kind of, you know, took a little lighter load the last year just to be able to stay through that um, collegiate judging venue, I guess. So. How did you, how did you guys end up that year? Um, sometimes we were hit or miss. I, uh, as a team, we weren't terribly strong. There was a couple of us that managed to, you know, get our names called at a couple of the places. Um, I, uh, at Houston, was first in sheep, and they promised me that they didn't, whatever the award was, they didn't have it, and um, I was supposed to get it mailed, and that was over 30 years ago. I've never seen it, so. Wow. Um, <laughs> but, Houston, you're getting you know, called I, out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there, you know, I, I mean, basically by doing that kind of led to, um, feeling comfortable enough to be able to go on and judge some little local shows. And then that evolved into doing, you know, quite a few national sheep shows. So are you involved anymore in any aspect of the judging, the livestock judging team at U of A? I am not. Um, I feel it's been four or five years ago. Uh, went back for one of the awards ceremonies, per se, that uh, the College of Ag had, where they had awarded me, you know, um, a plaque that basically was honoring my involvement in the livestock industry over the last however many, 20 some odd. 25 years and what have you. But as far as being involved with college itself, no, I, I haven't been. Hmm. Well, we need to get you involved. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh dang. I mean, was it kind of the same story when you were judging back then? I, I, they just, they can't get enough support. 
I feel um, I mean, that's, a, that's what I just, that's just what I keep hearing from kind of every judging coach that comes through there. They just can't get the support that they need. Well, and when I have t- throughout the years, you know, and I've known quite a few of the coaches use them to judge some of the Sailor jackpot shows and of what course. have you. And, you know, the story is the same. They have a hard time recruiting enough kids to even be able to have a, you know, an active team on an annual basis. And, and, you know, back when I was there, it was basically about every other year that there would be enough kids to, um, actually fulfill a team. And, you know, you hear the, the stories of other colleges and stuff of, you know, kids on waiting lists to be able to be active and we thought, well, you know, here, here at the U of A, we just say we want to do it and bam, you're, you're signed up. So, yeah. So it has been kind of the, a similar story uh, yeah, for, I for a while. So. Yep. Yep. Mm. It makes sense. I mean, when, when you say, oh, U of A is going to judge of the contest, I mean, no one's really expecting U of A to do anything. I mean, I, I have some friends on the U of A team right now, so I'm not trying to be disrespectful either. I mean, I know the coach as well. I've had him on the podcast. I'm not trying to be disrespectful in any way. But I feel like it just either let's try to revamp the program or let's cut it out. Like they said they were going to do a year ago until alumni stepped up and said, hey, don't cut it out. Where are those alumni now? Now that they need some support. Right. Hmm. Well, and yeah. you know, I don't know realistically what it would take budget-wise to yeah. be able to, you know, provide scholarships to entice the kids to For sure. come from across the country or what have you. You know, it's just yeah, that's a big thing too. Yeah, because some of those schools they have larger budgets in their ag extracurricular funds. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. But okay, that's enough of that, I guess. <laughs> so, right out of uh, right out of college, you're working for Sela. Um, I believe, right? Or out of college, you kind of you were like running around doing random stuff. Uh, when I graduated, I actually was living at the, and I don't know if they even still exist anymore, but the U of A had a turf plot where there was experiments on turf grasses and what have you and, and, you know, mowing stuff and weighing samples on a daily basis to see how much evaporation and stuff was. So I was doing that even though I had graduated and, um, a friend of mine who, uh, I knew through participating in Salem myself as a, you know, either a volunteer or having shown as a, you know, in high school called and said, um, that the gal that was currently the executive director was putting together animal health supply catalogs and would I be available to come and assist. And so that was basically my first actual employment, um, you know, getting a check every couple of weeks working for her. And that was Barbara Jackson. She is, uh, still in Tucson as far as I know, and has a animal health supply business. Um, and so those were the days of, it was cut and paste and, um, 
you know, we nothing was computerized or anything. So I started doing that, and she said, hey, you know, I've got uh, a lot on my plate. Would you like to help me with Sela and become the show manager and, and take care of all the shows? And she would still oversee all the executives type stuff. And so I said, yep, I don't have any better plans. So um, I started doing that. And at the time that I started, Sela was much more than we know it today. Um, we had in the fall an all breed horse show, which I think there was seven breeds at that time. And encompassed with that was a horse sale. Um, in January, we had a big hunter jumper show, which was part of a circuit, uh, for those types of horses. Um, and then in the spring, we had an open livestock show, uh, in conjunction with bull sales. And that was also the culmination for the jackpot shows. And at that point in time, we had six or seven throughout the state, um, and when we started, there were no pigs and no goats at any of the jackpot shows. It was strictly cattle and sheep. And I remember hiring judges for $50 a day. <laughs> of course. And they were happy to do it. And of at course. several of those, we also had little horse shows. So it was, uh, there was just a whole lot more going on throughout the, the year besides just the jackpot shows. Yeah. That is interesting. I, I was happy that we I learned that yesterday when talking to you because it, it's so. I mean, for those of people that are listening that don't know what Sela is, it's it's our jackpot series in Arizona. Um, how many shows do we? How many shows are there now, Tor? Uh, depending, if you want to count each day as a show, we would have fifteen to sixteen, um, and some are you know there's plans in the works for new ones. Um, there may be the elimination of some that had existed. So, uh, fluctuates a little bit, but you know, in the 15, 16 range, yeah. um, for an annual basis. It's really interesting because I mean, Sela started in 1935, right? Correct. Um, and there is no telling then what it would be now. I mean, like you said, like you were just saying, when you joined in the '90s as a show manager, they're doing quarter ho horse shows. They were doing stock dog uh, competitions, um, uh, bull sales. It's interesting what a organization like that can transition into or transition out of. Right. Well, and you know the the path that it took um, because it's always been made up of a board of directors. And at the time that I started, you know, there was people on the board that had their little pet projects. And one of them was the stock dog trial. And one was the horse shows and one was the hunter jumper shows. And so as those board members, uh, fulfilled their terms and decided that there was other things that they would rather do and the push for each of those projects, uh, when that impetus was gone and the new board realized that these projects are maybe sometimes in the black, but a lot of times they're running this in the red. They said, you know what, we need to focus on 
the youth aspect of all this and cut out all these programs that are costing uh, quite a bit of money. So, um, you know, it was a situation where uh, SALA, like all the county fairs, the state fair and the Arizona Nationals, all get a portion of what is termed the governor's fund. And, I mean, it's a fairly stable situation, but at the same time, you never know what is going to happen next year. So we were kind of in a situation where we were always just running right down to the wire financially. And so the elimination of of these uh, programs that were costing money helped us to build a little bit of a nest egg. Now, that's not to say that there's, you know, ungodly amounts of money in the account, but it's, we've got a little security. So, um, is that what your goal was, uh, coming on as an executive director is to just make the association as sound as possible and, and as well as like helping out the youth as much as possible? Um, yes. And for, um, about 10 years, there was a gal that worked with me and because we were not able to afford extravagant awards, we made our own felt banners. We, you know, nickel and dimed everything. And, uh, you as a kid would probably remember, you know, the prizes, et cetera, were not, um, as impressive as what they are today. And I'm sure that there's people that think that, you know, they could certainly be built upon as they are. And, and, you know, that's certainly true, but it was very much, um, there was quite a few frugal years. And, um, like I said, you know, I was hiring judges for $50 a day. Yeah, no. Yeah. So, (laughs) no, I remember, I think I remember winning a class like when I was yet really young, we went. To, Jeff took me to a sailor show, and I think I won the class and I got a water bottle, and I was ecstatic. I was ready to go with that water bottle. I don't. Yeah. I don't even know if I got a payout on that day, but just the <laughs> fact that I got the water bottle, I was ready. All right. Well, and you know, it used to be that kids wanted the flat ribbons and rosettes, and yeah, I remember that. After finding so many of them on the ground and in the trash. I, we just kind of said, well, we have them available if you want them, but we're not going to hand them out and then watch you just throw them or, you know, and dispose of them because I think that's a good transition that you guys made. Uh, No, I think that was a good transition that you guys made with that because those, those get lost way too often. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you're right. You find them on the ground after every jackpot show. And my mom used to like to keep them and try to, she made me a little, uh, like a decoration around my room that she, like she pinned all the ribbons to it, but you mm-hmm. could tell the ones that I had just stuffed in my pocket <laughs> when I was showing because right. they were all crinkled up and everything around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and my mother kind of did the same thing with all of the ribbons um, and made a couple of quilts. And, you know, the thought was certainly appreciated, but my mother was not a, very good seamstress and so (laughs) you can imagine the result but again it it was appreciated it it was certainly not anything that uh, was going to win any awards if it was put on display so yes now um 
there's no doubt, and, and I think I've talked to a lot of people about this topic on this podcast, but there, there's really no doubt in the past like 10 years heavily, this industry has ramped up a bunch. And I'm curious as to what your uh, perspective on it is as running a junior organization and having to deal with new guidelines, new rules, uh, maybe people that don't want these new rules or divisions, age divisions. I mean, I, I feel like running an association right now with the competitive level of some of these families has to be tough. Uh, without a doubt, it, uh, and the first, you know, if, if we're going to go talk about the very first thing that you see when you pull into a facility is look at all these brand new trailers and it seems like everybody is, you know, we got to keep up with the Joneses per se. So mm -hmm. everybody's got a brand new and does that make anything any better? I don't know. Um, you know, it certainly, you didn't have to have one 15 years ago and <laughs> you know, you could still have the champion, whatever, um, yeah. that trailer in a two horse and not care. Right. That's right. Um, yes. and, and poppers and stuff. Yeah. And so, um, and then on the, the backside where, you know, not a whole lot of people see, and you've got boards of directors and whether it's sailor or, or any other, um, show that is, uh, involving kids and, and their parents, um, there's a lot of pressure, whether it be from the board itself or from the outside to the board about, we need this, we want this, you know, things need to be more fair, et cetera, et cetera, i.e. more age categories, more classes, reducing the age limits, increasing, you know, the top end of the age limit. Um, and it's, you know, there's this pressure because uh, the parents want more opportunities or more what they term fair opportunities for their kid. And so uh, you've got this, you know, fairly high number of requests coming in. And as you can imagine, it's challenging to make everybody happy. Um, so there have been a lot of times when <laughs> I have, you know, screamed silently over their sometimes petty requests. Um, but when you step back and think, well, okay, this is what this person wants. If at least with Sela's perspective, if the board deems that a viable change and the majority votes, then there's a new rule. Um, looking at it personally, um, I kind of grew up not being handed everything. Um, my parents were supportive of things, but they never would have demanded or requested that, you know, something be established that would be in my favor. Yeah. Um, I, I came from a situation where my parents were both, school teachers money wasn't flowing freely um if i wanted a sheep i had to pay for it um 
And that was, you know, the, the way that I supported that was either through working, mowing yards, um, doing whatever it took, and then, you know, selling a project at the Maricopa County Fair financed the next year's. Um, so I, I think I have a, a kind of a different perspective on the whole situation as compared to a lot of kids where it's a family project and not so much the kids project. Yes. This is an ad for unitedharvest.com. This is also a plea from me to whoever is listening to this from unitedharvest.com. Please send me more meat. I'm out. Okay. I have eaten it all quickly. I need more. The The beef is incredible. I mean, that Wagyu Angus cross is to die for. You make it in burgers, they literally melt in your mouth. Okay? UnitedHarvest.com, please send me more meat. I'm starving. I want to ask you so many more questions <laughs> about like about uh, the executive board and and how you would kind of deal with that. I know that probably some of them are going to listen to this, so um, we probably shouldn't go too deep into it. Um, but I hear you. I mean, it has to be hard when you have parents that are serving on the board that are fighting for rules in their self-interest or in the ki- in their kids self-interest um that has to be really difficult to watch as well as try to like make them see hey you're being biased like why why can't you see that you're being biased right now in front of 20 other people that i don't know and i've never i i don't know we don't need to go go too deep into that i guess right well and i don't think that i mean there's no specific person that says no of course of course i have a redhead blue-eyed um kid with green eyes and we need to have a class for that i mean you know there's there's collective a couple of people talk and say oh let's do this and so to say that you know it's a a single entity requesting that's not the case um you know, it, yeah, I was I was just using that as a, as an example. I don't I don't right, mean to say that right. there's just one person on a, on the executive board that's doing that. Right. Um, but you're right. I mean, there are, people do tend to uh, uh, kind of go off in pairs or groups and 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 try to figure out the best ways to do things. What is your what's your goal in terms of um, the future of Sela within like the next ten years? Are, are do you guys want to keep growing? Do you guys want to keep adding shows? Um, I mean, what what is the future of Sailor look like? Well, and first and foremost, I guess would be that you know, even though I said that we have been able to build a little bit of a nest egg, in the event that we were to lose our funding, that would obviously hurt us. Um, significantly, in, you know, unless we get out and beat the band and, and you know, continually raise enough sponsor money. Um, so fin- the financial end of it would be the first and foremost. Um, I would say that, um, you know, everybody hears rumors about the Junior Livestock Associate or Junior Livestock World. And when when is... 
it going to come to an end? When is PETA going to be able to finally grab a hold and shut things down? And I, I look at the, what takes place at a lot of these junior shows. I don't disagree. I don't agree with it. I, I think there's too much physical abuse, too much drug abuse. Um, and so I certainly can understand from the ethical point of people that that is not acceptable. So if, if that were to come into play, then, you know, I can't predict what the future of any junior livestock association or world has. Um, as far as you take those two equations or those two subjects out of the equation, and I think, yes, we would like to continue to grow. And we've certainly seen in the last year a pretty good sized surge in growth. Um, and I think we have to be realistic in realizing that because California has pretty much closed its doors, that we are experiencing quite a few California families coming to the jackpot shows and increasing them in the event that, you know, COVID gets a handle, you know, there's a handle put on COVID and California is able to open up. I'm sure that we will continue to get some of those people that say, Hey, you know, we went, we had a good time, et cetera. But are we going to see the numbers continue? That's hard to predict. Um, you know, it's certainly easier to drive a couple hours than it is 10 hours to get to a show in Arizona. Don't have to do health papers, et cetera, stuff like that. So, um, the adding of more shows, uh, I think realistically, because as we increase the numbers of shows, we do get some feedback from the parents. Hey, you know, this is killing us either financially or we've got other obligations, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't, I personally would not want to put the, the, you know, we're going to have two shows a month and expect that everybody participates in those because that's realistically asking too much of the majority of the families that, you know, that are involved in the program. Um, yeah, that, that is uh, an interesting aspect of it too. Cause you know, the kids are, they don't think about that. They're just like, can we go to the next one? Let's go to the next right. one. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That's hard. That's hard as a, that's hard as a business too, knowing that you kind of have to restrict yourself because of the, uh, I mean, if you stretch yourself too thin, um, it, it'll affect the people that even are coming. Hmm. That's very interesting. Do you think that, uh, you mentioned that you see some stuff at livestock shows that you don't, um, agree with. And I 100% agree with you. I think that there is physical abuse and drug abuse that is going on even at these little jackpot shows, uh, let alone nationally. Do you think that's a, a big priority that we need to focus on in the show industry? Um, kind of honing in on that and maybe watching out for that and making sure that it isn't happening. Um, 
Well, certainly. And I can tell you that from a personal experience, when I have judged some of the sheep shows that in, you know, realistically, what I have been involved with for the majority of my judging tenure is framed or frame size breeding sheep, you know, whether they be fitted or, or what have you, and not so much the weather industry. Um, but that being said, there have been shows that do have slick shorn and um, the it is driven into the kid's head that they have to get them to brace and then whatever it takes to get them to brace. And if that means beating the living daylights out of them, um, then so be it. I have told kids, I said, you hit them one more time and you will be excused. And that stops it right there. And I think that a lot of these judges that were, you know, are out there and about, whether they came from a situation where they beat theirs and so it's okay or they're young enough and they don't have the guts to say that. And I have told guys, I said, you have the right to excuse any kid for this. I, I don't care. And I'll be standing in the ring and there'll be times when kids are getting a little carried away and I'll say, knock it off um, because you don't know who is out there watching. Yeah. Yeah, as far as go ahead i was just going to say it's important for the judge to say that i mean that that means a lot coming from the judge especially to those kids that might that might solidify it even more than just somebody random coming up to them right right well and the, and the threat of um you know if you continue to do it you're going to be out um the sheer embarrassment factor for the kid, I would think, would be enough to say, eh, I better better relax on this. So, yeah. mm. But I, I, I would say that realistically, um, as far as the physical part, you know, the uh, it's kind of the downfall of the judges that are out there that aren't putting a stop to it. Mm. As far as any... You know, drugs, one can assume by looking at things, but you can't, you don't have a 100% guarantee. You can see a kid slap something and say, I just saw you do that. You can't say, I'm 100% sure this one's been needled. Yeah. Is it easier to see that with more experience? Can you, I mean, I, well, I think, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, I know the big thing, uh, I don't know if it's a big thing right now, but I've heard it happening um, where people are airing sheep and stuff like that. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that. Uh, yeah, yeah. How do you, as have you seen as a judge? There was a couple of cases that I would have been suspicious that maybe something had been done, but it wasn't so overwhelmingly obvious that... Um, And I'm going to claim and be completely honest, I'm kind of naive as to what, what a person does or what kind of drugs you can use. Um, you know, from my experience, you got something that's limping a little bit, you give it some banamine. And that's <laughs> yeah. where, that's honestly, that's where it ends, you know. So yeah. anything that people are doing, since I don't have the experience, I don't know, you know, if you 
take something that's built like a stick figure and you can do something to it and all of a sudden it looks like you know mr atlas i don't know how to do that so <laughs> i don't know how to do that either i'm i'm right with you i'm naive on that stuff I mean, you can't really do any anything. You can't do anything crazy stuff in pigs. I mean, maybe some people can, and I don't know anything about it. But um, it seems like in sheep you can get away with some stuff, <laughs> and cattle. Well, cattle you can cattle, and, and sheep, cattle, sheep, and goats. I think that yeah. there's probably quite a bit of. Um, but yeah. you know, now um, you raise a. You raise some llamas. I do. How many llamas do you have? Uh, I think there's roughly 20. That's quite a few. Are they nice? Um, there are some that are very nice, and then there are some that would just as soon <laughs> kick, spit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a situation. Those uh, were either obtained or gathered up from people that, not that they were abused or anything they were just kind of neglected and so you know they lived to be four or five years old before they were ever touched and so you know they're just they haven't been uh, acclimated to having very much hands-on yeah. um, and you know everything that I have is is manageable, halter broke, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you know to say that I could walk up to every one of them out in the field and and touch them now. <laughs> How did you get into raising llamas? Um, when I was a kid, we actually lived in Panama for two years, and because my parents were teachers, we had the summers off, and so we went all over South America. And I saw these out in the fields and thought, oh, those are the coolest things. And, you know, had little stuffed llamas and what have you as a kid. Um, when I got of an age where, you know, I could actually do something, the llama market was extremely strong due to investors and what have you. And, you know, there was record selling $100,000 deals and and that was too rich for my blood, so um, it was well after college. Uh, some friends of mine, Bill and Liz South, were up in Washington and brought home a gelding for me as my sheep guard slash start into the llama world. And... You know, I'd sheared a lot of sheep, and I was petrified. What was I going to do? How was I going to shear this thing? And what was it going to do? And it was a late-cut late gelding, and it didn't work so well with the sheep um, because it uh, rode the ewes and actually broke down and, and didn't kill her. But basically, she had to be destroyed, what ended up being the mother of the first you that was Supreme Champion at Louisville for me. So oh, I got nice. rid of that llama pretty quick. Oh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then so then a friend of mine, Dave Kimberly, who has Sanderson Ford, had some. And so I got a couple from him. And then just the bug pretty much hit. And so, and at that point in time, the, the llama market had fallen to nothing to where they were saying, hey, could we pay, pay to take these things? And, um, so I had a 
fairly sizable, probably 30, give or take, in Tucson. Um, Arizona is not the place to raise them. They don't do well in the heat, and they are extremely susceptible to valley fever. And so that cost me quite a few of them mm. um, between Tucson and Phoenix. And so um, I guess as long as you're set up to know that, you know, if you've got to fight those two, um, I would not recommend it to anybody that lives in anywhere below 25 or no 3000 feet um, or wherever the valley fever can't survive because you can figure out how to cool them down, but you can't combat that. That is hard. So, That's very yep. hard. Yeah. Now, um, and you judge some llama shows. I have. But um, what are the um, requirements to judge a llama show? I know some, there's different species have different certificates or, or different accolades that you have to do. What do you have to do to judge a llama show? Um, the first thing is fill out an application and then uh, you have to go and apprentice with the, under a couple of different judges and pass a written test. And then um, there's a clinic that you have to go to before you actually go and apprentice and then a clinic that you need to attend after you've done that to get approved. So it's certainly more strenuous than judging any sheep show that, uh, you know, somebody come up and say, Hey, ever judge a sheep show want to. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how different species do different things. I mean, livestock, everything's just so, everything changes so fast and everything's just so speculative from each of the judges but if you go to the horse industry if you go to the rabbit industry llama industry i guess too i mean you you have to apprentice you have to study a standard uh that's throughout the entire industry but li livestock we kind of just say hey did you go to a year of junior college hey get in that ring right there get on the mic right yeah well and i think when they established the llama associate show association there was a lot of people that came from the Arabian horse world into the llama world and a lot of the standards and, and the way that things were set up was very much related to the horse world. Oh, okay. Interesting. Now, um, your real passion is sheep, right? Still, I mean, you like sheep quite a bit. I do like sheep, but I don't ever intend to own another one. Really? <laughs> really my gosh i did that for 30 years and um when i sold out the natural colors that i had at the end of those 30 years um i had gotten to the point where i'd raised and you know bred owned and shown to use it went on to be supreme at louisville um you know, I, I kind of felt like I'd reached the pinnacle, and then it got to the point where I didn't really care what buck I'd bred them to. And so I think when when you lose that passion, it's time to say goodbye. Um, and at That's that fair. time, the, the llamas were more of a, a challenge and interesting, and I knew that I had too good of a group put together to do that to or do that to them. Um, found a couple of younger guys that wanted them and sold them 
delivered them. I was judging National Rambouillet Sale in Colorado. Took those sheep up there, the use of mine, dropped them off. And um, when I was leaving the place, I couldn't drive past the, the pen that they were in. And I started bawling. I probably cried for 10 minutes driving down the highway and then got over it. Never looked back um, for about five years. And then I had a little resurgence. And again, I just thought, you know what? My interest is not here. So hmm. sent them on down yeah. the road. And um, that's that. That would have to be a difficult process, just letting them go. But, I mean, if you don't, um, if you don't tough. have that passion and you don't have the passion. Yep. And you know, they were in good hands and both of the guys that, um, ended up getting them, you know, combined with the sheep that they had and, and, uh, they bought out another flock and kind of merged everything. And, you know, they've taken them on further than I, um, was willing to put forth the effort to do. So it was, it was a good situation. So yeah. I have no regrets. I didn't know you had two Supreme U's at Louisville. Yep. What were they? The only, uh, they were both natural colored. Um, okay. The only two colored U's that have pulled that off. Um, there's only been, two, only been two Rams that have pulled that off. And uh, they belong to a friend of mine who used some bucks of mine. And so, you know, I kind of had the, an influence on, on all four of the ones that uh, were able to get that pulled off. So. That's actually pretty sweet. It was, but you know, the sad thing and, and it's, you know, people say, Oh, the good ones never, never work in the barn. And that was true. Yeah, of course. <laughs> they, it always they could win is. lots of banners and stuff. And, and, um, as far as being brood used, the one had some descendants that were okay. The other one, she was a flop. So yeah. <laughs> that's never good. Yeah. 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 I didn't know, um, I didn't know how many times you judged Louisville. I'd like to talk this. I want this recorded um, because you were saying how many times you judged Louisville. And I, I wrote a list down as you were saying. It. I'm going to try to say it. Judge the junior show four times, you think. Uh, might be more, might be less. Judge the Columbias, the Cordales, the Ramblays, the Natural, the Suffolks, the Hamps, um, the Lincolns, the Oxfords. What else? I missed a couple. I know I did. Oh, Cheviots, Monadales, the Wool Show, um, the Shetlands. And, you know, that's reading all those names. That's not necessarily one breed per year. Just last fall, I did four breeds. Um, and with COVID, it was not, you know, the show was not anywhere near the size and they were having trouble getting judges hired and what have you. So some of the years it's been more than, you know, doing more breeds than uh Okay, Mr. Humble, get out of here with that. It's impressive. Let me tell you, it's impressive. Gosh, dang um, it. If I had to give you a number of years, I think, and I think I said this yesterday, that it's been 15, 16, maybe even longer, because as you get older, your memory goes. But um, in in since I started, there's been one year that I did not judge something. So, um, yeah, I bet you got whether to it's been see 15 quite a bit or... of... Go ahead. 
So whether it's been 15, 20 years, I don't know. I, I'm not a collector, so I didn't keep the little um, the badge that says that I was a judge. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you got to see some really good livestock, though. I mean, that's, uh, oh, yes. that's a, one of the best um, sheep shows in the country. Um, yeah, yeah. If you uh, if you've got a, a good one, it's the place to be. And yeah. for a lot of years, I would start off in either Phoenix or Tucson, drive all the way up to Northern California, picking up sheep, and then heading east, and you know, um, be there at, in Kentucky for ten days, and then take the same route back and i'll be honest i don't miss those days at all i bet you don't <laughs> that sounds wild <laughs> sounds like a long trip uh yeah there's been you know new transmissions put in of course um, just all kinds of stuff along those yeah. routes yeah well um tor that's all i had for you basically what do you think I thought you did good. Well, I uh, hopefully not everybody said, oh, turn the podcast off. <laughs> we don't want to listen to this. No, no. I, I thought it went really well. And um, give me um, to, to some to exhibitors that are listening. As an executive director, give me, a, give me a piece of advice to the exhibitors that are listening right now. Um. I think as long as people put everything into perspective and realize that the focus on all of this is to have fun, to gain some education, to gain some life experience, and not make winning the absolute finite thing. You got to enjoy things. And if you are so focused, on winning and if you don't win how much of a disaster your life is and to not sweat the little things and realize that that one day is one person's opinion and certainly either you know if it's at one of our jackpots the next day could be completely different or yep. next week or uh, next month but um and to appreciate those that help you to get where you are, whether it be your parents, your leaders, advisors, whoever, um, yeah. for providing you that opportunity. Yeah. It takes a village these days. It does. It does. Yeah. yeah. All right, Tor. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, you bet. It, it, well, we're going to have to do an in-person interview at one of these days of the show. Okay. Those always go better. So, <laughs> and, and we'll add somebody. We'll add Jeff or somebody in there so we can get a real good conversation going. All righty. All right, Tor. I'll talk to you later. All righty. Thanks. All right, have a bye. good one. Bye-bye. Time's limited, so you must listen carefully. Tor is a fantastic guy. Uh, I hope to know him in the future for a long time. Um, and, uh, even though he lives in a different state now, it's, it's not hard, uh, it's not hard to pick up the phone and call these guys. Uh, and that goes for anybody listening. I mean, it, it's just a phone call away to any one of these, uh, industry leaders that can help you out on a day to day basis. So reach out to them, please.
and I need to be better about that too on my end. Okay, come back next week. Um, I think I'm going to release a couple episodes for you, just like rapid fire, just because I haven't released some in a while. I'm just going to rapid fire a couple at a time, potentially. So that could be cool. All right, come back. Thanks for sticking with me. I'll talk to you guys soon. I love you. Bye.